There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Johanna Baxter, chair of Labour's National Executive Committee. And this is an absolute thrill. If you ever, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously a political nerd and I love all the internal stuff, but this is internal stuff made very, very accessible. And why, not just any political party, obviously we talk specifically about Labour and why it has, the structure that it has, how it works, and also what those meetings are like, including the one just a few days ago uh, that voted by 22 uh, to 12 um, to prevent Jeremy Corbyn being able to stand for the Labour Party at a future general election. So what are those meetings really like? How pressured is the atmosphere? But also, why do people give so much of their free time, you know, not just joining a political party and wanting to get selected for parliamentary elections or local elections, but also to serve the party internally as a volunteer when there's so much responsibility on your shoulders. Now, <laughs> Johanna is just such a positive and chirpy person and has had to be positive through some very difficult experiences, uh, as you can imagine, uh, as someone who's not a Corbyn supporter, being on the NEC during those years. Uh, and some of you may remember the very moving television interview uh, with Jana um, outside Parliament. Um, so it's just, this is just a great defence of why you should join a political party. Now, obviously, that's not advice I'm going to take because I'm not going to join a political party again. But it's I love politics obviously and and i just have so much respect obviously having been a party member and a party staffer i just it actually i found it so inspirational to talk to someone who just still defends being a member getting involved doing stuff and just the energy and stamina and positivity you need and it's not about what faction you are whether you're left wing or right there'll be people in every political party across the uk and across the planet that share that energy that Johanna has. And it is infectious. So it's not even about your ideology or what side you're on. It's just, in a way, thank God, there are people in politics who have that, who have that ability to just keep, keep going. Um, so the, you will love this. And it's really interesting about what happened at the at the NEC the other day and just what those meetings are really like and, and how they go and, and the dynamics within them and what informs them. So there's a lot, you know, if you're a political nerd, this is great. But if you're not, this is a really accessible way into internal party politics um, and structures and things like that. I mean, obviously, I, I just love it all. Um, if you want to come and see the next live show, um, uh, then it's on Monday the 3rd of April with Ruth Davidson reacting, of course, to the new First Minister of Scotland, Hamza Youssef. What amazing timing that is uh, with the former leader of the Scottish Conservatives and one of the most charismatic people I've ever met. Monday the 3rd of April with Ruth Davidson. Talking of charisma, my guest a fortnight later on the 17th of April is Labour's Jess Phillips, an absolute megastar. That will be so good. She's always, I mean, she's just so funny. That'll be great. On Monday the 22nd of May, the definition of a heavyweight 
David Blunkett on a Monday, the 5th of June, an extremely rare interview uh, with the former Chancellor, uh, the Conservative Philip Hammond. So the next four guests are just incredible. I'm on the verge of being able to announce some very exciting guests for future shows, but just hold tight on those. Uh, but follow me on Twitter at Matt Ford and I'll announce them there. So, so in quite enough of the live shows because you're really going to love this. This is a, a great in, just inside account of what it's like to serve internally for a political party at the highest level. So, Johanna, you're the current chair of Labour's NEC, but you've been on the NEC on and off for about nine years. So just to explain, firstly, can you only be chair for one year? Yes. Okay. So you've only got a few months left. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I didn't want to quite a negative start. But then um, what is the role of the chair of the NEC? Well, I mean, obviously, technically, to keep things in order during the meetings, um, and that can be easier said than done, (laughs) depending on what's on the agenda. Um, But between meetings, obviously, it's a key role in terms of liaising with the General Secretary's office and the Leader's office. Um, um, And um, obviously, it means that I'm one of the um, NEC officers, um, which means we have a, a role on the business board, so over um, seeing the party's finances, legal responsibilities, and all of that. Well, this is big stuff, isn't it? I mean, obviously, historically, um, if you think about cash for honours and things like that, you know, like the NEC has a, it, it can be crucial in the survival of a, of the, the Labour leadership and the Labour Party, and obviously. throughout its history you really are the the keeper of the rules and whoever controls the NEC it's a real signal as to where the heart and the soul of the Labour Party is um this week obviously excuse me there was a big vote on whether Jeremy Corbyn should be allowed to stand at the next election and I think it was passed 22 to 12 in favour of Keir Starmer's um motion that he shouldn't be able to so that's that's a clear majority in favour of the current leadership and against the old one but still, yep. a third of the people in the room were at least open to Jeremy Corbyn standing again. Yes. Um, I mean, I think um, one of the things I'd say is that um, these people weren't all in the room either um, because um, post-COVID, we now have hybrid uh, meetings, which never existed before. Um, so gone are the days where it was shouting across the table. Um, actually, the debate was quite reasonable. Um, and obviously, people are entitled to their views um, and entitled to express those views. Um, I think I only once had to uh, remind people to be comradely. <laughs> Um, so, so that's not a bad thing. Um, but I think debate's healthy, right? Um, uh, there was a discussion about whether the item should be on the agenda, but ultimately it was a competent piece of business. It was a motion um, put forward by the leader, seconded by Shabana uh, Mahmood. Um, it was a competent piece of business and therefore it was on the agenda. So just in terms of how many people are zooming in or whatever, uh, uh, it, is it like half and half or are most people in the room? 
Most people are now in the room um, and uh, it was nice to see a couple of colleagues this week who, who hadn't made it in person for a wee while. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, it varies um, depending on what's on the agenda. Um, and uh, obviously when we just come out of COVID, uh, there were still fewer people in person. But I think actually um, it's much better to be able to see people um, because the sort of discussions that we have at the NEC are not always easy. Um, they're difficult issues predominantly that we deal with. Um, they're probably, um, the you know, people would think of them as quite technical and boring aspects of political activity. But as you say, there are some of the most important things that the that that, that steer the party, that keep us on the right track. Um, and as we've seen over recent years, um, make some really pivotal decisions about where the Labour Party stands in relation to some big issues. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, when I worked for the party, the NEC, I mean, I've never been to an NEC meeting. I've always wanted to go to one and sort of sit in on it and see what it was like, because ultimately the rule book, the lot, I mean, it, it, everything, the NEC, is in, uh, it felt like, and this was when Tony Blair was leader, I felt like the NEC was in total control of the Labour Party, even during those periods. Like, <laughs> so I always had, it just had an air of sort of mystery and magic about it. And obviously it's sort of the, the mythology of it, uh, around factionism, but actually it sounds like, you're making it sound actually, you know, there's obviously a lot of politics involved, but quite comradely and just a load of people sat around a table. Well, yeah, I mean, I've been to those meetings that haven't been so comradely in the past. Um, I, I do I do remember uh, one meeting which was particularly difficult, which was a number of years ago um, that I went to when obviously the, the press pack were camped outside um, and very eager to find out what had been decided at the NEC meeting. Um, and on this particular occasion, I, I still had my leg in a sticky, having broken my ankle. <laughs> um, and so I was pleading with uh, with uh, colleagues at the meeting that they didn't just abandon me in front of the press as I left because I wouldn't have to, I would have been able to run away from them. Um, <laughs> the thing is that everybody that's on the NEC is a human being, right? Um, we're all members of the same party, um, so we might have difficult debates, and we have, but ultimately, I would hope everybody around the table wants to see a Labour government um, and and that's what they, we're all there to achieve. I mean, I think people do think that the NEC is, you know, some kind of remote body that, you know, works in really mysterious ways. It's really not. Um, I mean, we are all um, representing different parts of the party um, and I think one of, the, one of the reasons I was so honoured to be elected chair is because I think I'm only the second CLP rep that's ever been elected chair of the NEC. Um, and that's because, obviously, in the CLP section, we're elected by the entire membership. So there's greater churn on our section of the NEC than in others. So if you want to um, sort of uh, build up uh, a, a reputation amongst your colleagues that would um, render you eligible to be elected as chair, then you have to have been there for, for some time. Um, but yeah, we're all we're all there speaking up for different parts of the party. Um, 
and we've got a job of work to do. I mean, I I have to admit, I, I liked, um, there was a very quirky thing of the NEC that existed pre-COVID that I am bringing back in. And what's that? <laughs> um, and that is, this. <laughs> everybody thinks it's really bizarre, but it works for a reason. Um, we all sit in alphabetical order. Okay. And that's a good, you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? And it's a really good thing. <laughs> oh, okay, so that and I, and stops I people sitting in like blocks, yes, I suppose. Yes, I, I really appreciate it even more now that I'm chair because you because you mix everybody up. You don't have all the trade unions sitting together and all the MPs sitting together and all little factions sitting together mumbling during the meeting everybody is on an equal platform and on an equal fitting and they sit beside their colleagues regardless of which part of the party they're representing um and given some of the um the the propensity for chatter during meetings um i'm definitely bringing that back in and what are what if there are sort of cliches about the nec is it that the unions always behave in a particular way or that certain affiliates have a certain character or that the youth reps always uh, tub thumping or whatever it is. Are there kind of um, stereotypical ways in which these things play out? Not always. Um, I mean, uh, on on some issues, I would say yes, because um, it's just it's the way of things in terms of different um, people representing different parts of the party. Um, I wouldn't say it's always been that way, though. Um, and and I think you see much more debate amongst different um, constituent parts of the, the NEC um, now. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's a healthy thing. Um, but I mean, obviously, the, the trade union side, for example, has a pre-meet um, prior to the NEC. So they'll try and see if there's any issues of commonality for the members that they represent. And that's perfectly as it, as it should be. And um, other, other um, constituent parts will do the same. Um, so sometimes you get a good feel in advance of the meeting where people um, are likely to end up. Um, but sometimes it's just completely left field <laughs> and, um, and it comes out of nowhere. So you do have to um, think on your feet. Um, but, yeah. And is it would it be unfair to say that the NEC is generally, in any given time, usually to the left of where the leadership is? Um, well, I'm not really sure about that. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that that is the case, um, because if you look back to our history, um, the trade unions actually um, have on occasion been um, not not to the left of the yes. leadership. Yeah, they've been the saviors of <laughs> the party I, at various points. You, you could say that, yes. <laughs> Um, so I don't think it's always that way. And I also don't think um, it really works as a generalisation because it assumes that everybody um, is to the left on everything. Um, whereas actually, I think it's much more nuanced and um, based on different types of policies and their impact. So um, it could be that, that one section of the NEC is is 
what some people would perceive as more left-wing in terms of foreign policy matters, um, but more uh, right-wing on some other issues. Um, but actually, remember that the NEC is not the policy-making body of the party. Um, and I think a lot of people forget that. Um, so I've had lots of emails recently about make sure PR is in the manifesto, make sure this is in the manifesto. And all this. we're not the policy-making body of the party. And whilst a number of us obviously um, sit on policy commissions, it's the National Policy Forum that is the policy-making body of the party. So um, we have a say, like other members of the National Policy Forum, um, but it is, it's not until that big meeting of the National Policy Forum has happened, and then we have what's called the Clause 5 meeting, which is representatives of the Policy Forum, the National Executive Committee, and uh, the PLP, and the leadership. Um, it's not until that, that actually the manifesto is locked. And and just as the unions pre-meet, do, do any of the affiliates get together? Do, do the Fabians and the co-op get together beforehand? Well, um, I, I I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure about that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but remember, obviously, um, they're represented by the Socialist, Socialist Society's representative on the NEC. So it would be... Um, quite appropriate for James as that rep to meet with them beforehand to gauge their views. Um, in terms of like the, the CLP reps, I mean, I, we don't ourselves have a, a pre-meet per se, but that's probably because actually lobbying the CLP reps is probably much easier than any other uh, part of the NEC. So we get lobbies all the time. Um, and actually um, finding a consensus amongst the CLP reps um, well, there would be some consensus on some things, but it might be more difficult in others because we're representing all members of the party. So um, the entire range of the broad church. <laughs> and when you're um, in a meeting like the one the other day where it's a news event and it's being briefed ahead that this, this motion on Corbyn's going to be put, do you have a sense before that, do you think actually knowing the complexion of the NEC as you do, this is likely to be carried? Or do you think this could go either way? Well, I think certainly in my role as chair, um, I had to be prepared for every eventuality. <laughs> um, so you do find yourself kind of double checking bits of the rule book in advance just to make sure that that you know, you're okay. And if there are specific questions that come up that, that you can answer them. And obviously I, I probably know the rule book <laughs> better than most people, but you still sometimes want to refresh yourself. Um, so I don't think actually I'd ever go into me saying thinking everything's locked on a particular issue one way or the other. Um, I think you've got to prepare for all eventualities. And also I think what we have seen in recent years is the lobbying particularly of CLP reps in advance of meetings like that um, can be quite substantial. Um, I remember um, one previous year when um, there was, uh, a, it wasn't necessarily a motion, but there was a, an issue that was coming up um, 
just pre-conference and I think the 24 hours before the NEC meeting on this issue I had more than 3,000 emails um, into my mailbox and and the thing is that the thing that people forget is that the CLP reps we're all volunteers we're all day jobs Um, and and so something like that just melts your mailbox (laughs) yeah you need like a separate email account for that yeah you can't have that going into your gmail i i I didn't have one (laughs) um i have to say i I thought that was uh that was quite a lot of lobbying but but it has limited impact though because well when many of them are pro forma template emails you you stop reading them because you can't read three thousand emails 24 hours before the nec meeting when you have a full-time day job which which I do, and I take really seriously, and I'm I'm a trade union official in my day job, so you know that's also helping the movement. Um, so yeah, so I think it's limited. But actually, um, in advance of this week's NEC meeting, I think I only got fifty odd emails. So whilst people would suggest that it might have been quite a controversial subject compared to some of the lobbying that I've had previously it didn't generate the same level of heat that other issues have. And were you ahead of that, you know, having seen that it was trailed in the media and everything, did you think, oh, God, this might be quite a difficult meeting? Or or, or, or do you think, actually, you know, I know everyone on the NEC, people will be passionate, but it will basically be fine? Uh, I did have my porridge that morning. <laughs> With a nip of whiskey in it? No, no, no. I wanted to keep a clear head. Lots of coffee and a bit of porridge. You're fine. <laughs> I, I crept past the press pack on my way in. <laughs> it was all good. And and the 12 people that, that voted against it, were they sort of varying degrees of passion? Did it get heated? It did at one point. Um, uh, and, you know, at, at that one point, I, I did remind somebody to um, not use personal attacks on anybody. Um, Because I have to say, I I, I mean, I just don't believe in that at all. There's no place for that in our party at all, um, particularly at a leadership level. Um, So, yeah, you know, that, that was the only point in the meeting. Everybody else that spoke against that motion, um, I, I, well, I've I've heard them be more passionate. That's interesting. So, uh, having been on the NEC through, through you know on and off for nine years and and seen the changing direction of the Labour leadership and the changing complexion of the NEC, do you get the sense that effectively things in the Labour Party are calming down a bit? I I do um, genuinely, and I think um, uh, one of my NEC colleagues, Margaret Beckett, has a a, a well um, worn phrase uh, which I think is very true, which is that the closer the party is to power, the shorter the NEC meetings. <laughs> um, and even even though uh, this week's NEC meeting was trailed as being a big brouhaha, actually, um, we were finished at quarter to five. And what time did it start? Ten? No, twelve. Okay, so that's not bad. And and what's it's not the... bad. And I've been there for the nine and a half hour meeting, so wow. I'm <laughs> I'm rocking up this week as an achievement. I mean, anyone who's been involved in politics or like the party at a volunteer or staff level, 
I mean, conference, obviously, with like composting and things like that, those things can just go through the night. So you're always prepared that you might need to be there past midnight. Um, is the catering any good? Do they give you nice sandwiches? Hmm. Well, uh, they've always been from the same uh, the same caterer, and uh, I think I think no, I, I, they they are going to change them. I think. <laughs> so the, the, the whole time you've been there, it's always been the same. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, it got a bit repetitive. Although at the away day, um, there was a bit of a, an NEC bake off. Um, because we have a couple of uh, bakers on the committee. Um, so Wendy Nichols um, was a professional chef in a, in a school, um, I think. And was that Mike Payne um, that was baking as well? Um, and I bake. Um, so there was, a, there was a, an away day bake-off. Wendy brought her uh, very fancy Christmas cakes um, and I brought my ginger cake and actually they went down very well. I, I do think food <laughs> is key to keeping people happy so we need to change the people that provide the sandwiches to the NEC. I did I did suggest to uh, Cure the other day that um, I, I bring down a supply of deep fried Mars bars but he wasn't too keen. <laughs> I mean that's interesting. I want people might presume that there's a pressure for you know everything to be ethically sourced. That um, people might say we can't have MS sandwiches. You know that's bourgeois uh, catering. We've got to use the local guy, or is it just the yeah, nearest so thing to Victoria Street? Yeah, it's the nearest thing. To, it's not Victoria Street anymore, by the way. Of course. Um, South Side, where it's called. Um, it, it no, it's not South Side. Um, so we're south of the river. Um, of course. I, oh, my and, God. Yeah. And I, I have to say, the offices are uh, absolutely bang on in terms of being fit for purpose. It's such a much better working environment for our staff, which I think is really important. Um, and we're not far away from um, Westminster at all. So it is usually the nearest place to HQ. Um, it's not m and um, I'm not going to reveal who it is, but... <laughs> But yes, um, there are also a group of mem NEC members who bring packets of sweets, which is another reason to bring back the seating in alphabetical order so they can be shared equally. Yes, that's <laughs> amongst, a very good point. Amongst yeah. all. Um, so, so think about the because some people, you know, in politics might say, well, look, I'm interested in being a councillor or an MSP or an MP or whatever. The internal route might not massively appeal to them. So Obviously, it's something as, as well as seeking elected office that, that does appeal to you. What is it about serving the party internally that, that attracts you to it? Um, well, I think um, I've probably always been a bit of a stickler for the rules. <laughs> One of my best friends in the party I first got to know because we um, we were having an argument about um, the application of a particular bit of the rule. <laughs> we were vehemently opposed and now we are the best of friends. Um, and actually, it, that's because we both care about the party. And I think um, in terms of the internal structures of the party, nothing else works without it. Um, and, you know, I, I think we've seen in the not too distant past um, what can happen to the party when there isn't a proper grip on internal um, 
governance arrangements, um, internal organisation, um, the financing, um, uh, you know, uh, goes to port. The staff engagement um, isn't as good. Um, and your preparation for a general election isn't as good. You, you, you don't perform as well as you could do unless all the internal workings are working smoothly that, you know, you've oiled the wheels, if you like. Um, and, and I have to say, I just think in the past couple of years, we've come on leaps and bounds. Um, and, you know, if you'd asked me when I got back on the NEC in 2020, if we would have made this much progress in that amount of time, I, I would have thought it would have been unlikely. But I have to say, there's been such a huge amount of work done by the staff and by a number of NEC members um, who have just devoted their time to things like, you know, the Ford Working Group, um, the um, drawing up of um, the independent review process, uh, the documents that, that require that, um, they're very legalistic, you know, people, people actually need to devote a lot of time out with the whole spectacle of the NEC meeting um, to these matters to make sure we get them right. Um, and a lot of that stuff is the stuff that never gets reported on. Um, it's all those weighty tomes that we uh, plough through to try to make sure that we are on a sound legal footing, uh, that we're doing the right thing for the party, that we are setting setting a bar in terms of what we would expect of others um, and, and making sure that we comply with it. So uh, I'm really proud of the progress that we've made. Um, the response to the EHRC report, which was just an absolutely shameful period in our history, um, but the response that we've now developed in terms of the independence complaints process um, is just phenomenal um the checks and balances that are in place now in terms of internal complaints disciplinary measures etc are are excellent um and it's right that they're there and actually it's quite reassuring as an NEC member who takes those difficult decisions um some of which are quite finely balanced sometimes uh, that there is somebody else that looks at it to say yeah um that that sound or you might have missed a bit of evidence there and and actually it's you know um they have overwhelmingly just supported the decisions that have been made with a couple of exceptions where actually a second look has kind of has has done what it was supposed to do and um um flash up something that um otherwise might have been missed so i think all of that progress is phenomenal and even at the, the meeting the other day, um, the amount of money that has now been raised by the party for the general election compared to where we were before, it's phenomenal. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, we still need more. Um, <laughs> so it's a plea if anyone hasn't donated. Yeah, click here to donate. To do yeah. so, indeed. Um, but I think what, what we can see is that the fundraising efforts are happening. The the preparations are underway for the for the um, 
the um, construct of the manifesto and the camp, the internal campaign organisation in terms of the selection procedures and everything, it's all gearing up and working much more smoothly than it than it was. I mean, people wouldn't. Anyone who's been involved in a political party would know how important the things you described are. But giving yourself and giving your time as a volunteer to ensuring those things are done properly. You know, you're already working for a trade union, as you say. You're already a member of the Labour Party. You're standing for selection. To to add another thing, you know, the stamina you must have. I mean, what is it that you have that other people don't? Because some people just find it so hard to 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 keep going. You know, I think in in you know there have been times when it has been difficult to keep going, um, particularly. Um, you know, in some of those difficult NEC meetings, when the abuse that we was getting hurled at those of us um, uh, who were on the NEC was really quite difficult um, to deal with. Um, I, I'm a volunteer. I don't have staff. I don't have anybody to screen my emails for me or anything like that. I, I use my annual leave to uh, to go to NEC meetings. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i mean it you know there have been times when it's difficult but <clears throat> you know what um i don't i we came into politics to help the most vulnerable in our country and if we don't do it who does um you know I, it has always been my view someone has to do the hard graft and take the difficult decisions um and I've never shied away from those. Um, there's there's been times I've needed uh, a, a bit of uh, support from my friends, um, but I, I never ever forget why we're in it. And it's uh, and and for me, the driver is the same driver as to why I'm a trade union official because there are people out there who don't have a voice who rely on the party, on a trade union, giving them that voice. Um, that's why I do it. Um, and there are too many of those people now because of both the SNP and the Tories. And it breaks my heart seeing some of the hardship that some of the members that I represent have to go through every day because of political decisions that are being made um, for them. I remember seeing you interviewed uh, on, on College Green, it must have been after an NEC meeting, or it was definitely the Corbyn years, and it, it was a very difficult thing to watch. Um, and you'd obviously been just you know, piled on uh, and, and treated very, very badly by members of the Labour Party and supporters of Jeremy Corbyn. I, I, I can't remember the exact conversation. I just sort of remember the, the image of you visibly emotionally moved. I mean, how difficult was that period as someone who's, you know, given their life to the Labour movement and specifically to the party to go through a, a period and, and, and effectively be abused in the way that you were? I mean, when you've joined the Labour Party, you must never have been able to foresee that something like that was going to happen. I, I would never have thought something like that could happen. And... um I think the most difficult thing that I found during that period was that so much of the abuse was coming from people within the party because I, I could never, ever imagine treating somebody else like that, never mind somebody um, within my own party who 
believes that a Labour government is better than any other form of government. I, I just, I think I, that that was what actually really hurt most, um, you know, and I, I think I've become much better at um, hitting the mute button on Twitter. <laughs> um, um, so that people can shout into the wind. Um, but, uh, you know, it wasn't deserved. And I and I think that um, certainly one thing that I've always tried to, um, to demonstrate um, in all my dealings in the party and the trade union movement is that, you know, everyone has a right to disagree. Everyone has a right to their views. But we can surely disagree agreeably. I mean, surely. Um, because you know, it's it's our it's in our DNA as members of the Labour Party, surely, that we believe in treating people with respect. Um, so yeah, I it it was difficult. Um, I'm glad that's not where we are right now. And I think what was so moving about it was, you know, here was someone who's effectively a volunteer who wasn't protected by parliament or, or staff or anything effectively having their life impacted in a very negative way by trying to make the world a better place. I mean, it was, it was actually horrifying for the, not the direction of the Labour Party, but obviously the country at the time was going through numerous things that were, you know, two constitutional debates that are still very raw. Uh, and then what was happening inside the Labour Party. I mean, I don't know if you ever considered just saying, I can't be bothered with this anymore. It, it's not for me. Um, I, I never considered walking away from the party ever. Um, I, I remember um, a, a journalist at a Scottish Labour Party conference um, that I've known for many years uh, had interviewed me at that time and said, oh, are you going to um, defect to this breakaway party? And I said, absolutely never. No. And, you know, I do understand why some people felt um, that they had to leave um for their own sake um but i just couldn't do that I, I i couldn't ever imagine um not being a member of the labor party um because poli politics isn't like an academic exercise for me it's part of who i am um and the labor party is like an extended family almost um and i i think also as difficult as that period was, and it was very difficult, um, the number of people who reached out um, really touched me um, and some senior uh, people in the party, um, you know, who, who said, thank, thank you for standing up um, for, for us and keep going. And, and that meant a, an incredible amount to me. Um, because I, I always just think I am just a CLP rep. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a member of the shadow cabinet or anything glamorous. I'm just a volunteer. So um, so it meant a lot that some people reached out and, and showed that support. So it kind of reminded me that there, you know, there are always more decent people there than there are people who aren't being I think, um, obviously, you know, I'm a, a political obsessive and people who listen to this will be as well, but, it, 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 you know, there are millions of people out there that would never join a political party and would never feel that kind of 
emotional connection to it or or even the you know the the pastoral element or or just the, the, the stimulation that it that it adds to your life i mean how would you describe someone who's not a member of a political party the the, the in effect the the, the the pleasure that it gives you <laughs> um well i i i mean i was trying i was trying to describe this to somebody the other day actually um and i think like last year, I was, um, so I'm head of local government for Unison Scotland. Um, and so I lead negotiations on behalf of 200,000 council workers across Scotland. And last year, um, the pay negotiations that we were involved in, I mean, they got um, difficult funding issues and all the rest of it. Um, but we managed to move uh, a 2% offer, initial offer, up to more than seven and a half percent on average, which was from sixty million pounds, sorry, one hundred twenty million pounds to six hundred million pounds. Um, and you know what? Like, I, I, I lots of people have different views about um, when trading is taken, industrial action, all the rest of it. Um, and I'm firm believer that you know people have a right to take action if they so choose um but that dispute lasted about nine months but in the in the end two hundred thousand workers benefited from the work that i did in real hard cash in their pocket and you know what no one can take that away from you and that's why I do it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that you get to do that is very, very cool as well, like chairing annual conference. And when people are watching it on telly and you're sat there on that table looking at an arena full of people. I mean, it must be like doing a rock concert. It's a bit weird. <laughs> and of course, you, you, um, you're you straight under the lights as well. So it's really hot and you can hardly see anything. But you have a big map in front of you that tells you um, where different delegations sit so that you can try to try to make sure there's a balanced debate assuming people sit in the right places obviously um but yeah it's that's always a, a really uh pressured time as well because 
everybody wants to speak and you're never able to call everybody um so yeah that that can be a, a juggling act but yeah it's very good the the most un, underrated uh thing though is the the fact that you can get to go backstage and get coffee <laughs> a, free, a free nescafe and that's it i'm not even sure if it's nescafe <laughs> is like one of those big urns but you know, as a caffeine addict, that's uh, <laughs> that's one of the perks. best things about. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> it really made me like. I mean, I love watch. I love going to party conferences, and I love watching them on telly. Mainly, actually, the main speeches aren't what makes me laugh. It's like all the different delegates from all over the country, and I, some people make these amazing speeches, and it's their first time, or they're moving. You know, some people possess an amazing gift for oratory. You, you don't yeah. know until they open their mouth. Like, there's no hint. And then you get the ones that really made me laugh. It was during the Corbyn years. Obviously, all these new people during the Labour Party, they're going, oh, I haven't been caught. And like, obviously, people who just see, you know, the whole narrative about the world is, oh, it was some sort of plot against me. And you're like, mate, there are 7,000 people trying to speak. And they're going, I wasn't called. It's a conspiracy. Thing. We can't see you, mate. There is no I conspiracy. I mean, I think I think the most difficult one that I had was was the year that everybody decided to bring a prop. <laughs> it was it was crazy. So you're sitting in this chair, and there was like blow up drafts and things, and you're like, you like know, I can't I can't call you just because you have a blow up giraffe. I mean, I, I love giraffes. I've worked with them in Africa, but you know, you don't get bonus points. <laughs> the thing is. I feel part. I don't feel partially responsible, but certainly when I worked at the party, there were people that were sensible that I knew wanted to speak. I would say, you know, have a cuddly, you know, have a soft toy or wave something to catch the chair's eye. And obviously that has just escalated to the point where everyone is now. And I think someone, it might have been you had to say, I think that like either a statement was put out or like you stop waving all these props. It's actually not helping. Yeah. Yeah, I have had to say that. Um, it, it doesn't help because you can't actually then see other people either. Um, so you can't balance the debate. What I've always tried to do is make sure, I mean, we had a um, a debate on devolution last year and I was, I, being somebody who is uh, Scottish and from the Scottish Labour Party, I was like, you know, an issue like devolution, well, sorry, Scotland and Wales are definitely going to be cold. Someone from both are going to be cold, as well as obviously the English regions. Um, but I couldn't actually see the Welsh delegation <laughs> because they were they were like directly in front of me, but right at the back of the hall. And it was so dark and I just couldn't see anybody. So I kept saying, <laughs> by the way, if you're from Wales... <laughs> Stick up your hand so I can see you because you're quite likely to get cold. <laughs> um, but um, I think it's also um, before you chair things like that as well, the lobbying uh, again. <laughs> so you then have all these random people texting you saying, um, I understand you're the chair in this debate. So if you could please call me. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know who you are. I have a text here from Steve. He says he wants to talk. What, how, like, what are you supposed to do with that? Well, uh, you can't. I mean, you just, you can't do it. And, and like, is, I mean, confident. Uh, uh, so obviously, I love it as a spectacle. 
and I love it as uh, effectively a festival of politics for a few days. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously you get to figure out what the mood of the party is and all stuff like that. It, it, do you think it plus the PLP plus the um, the the, uh, the uh, MPF, the National Policy Forum, is that the best way to make policy, or or should some of it, <laughs> depending on who's the leader, I'm periodically in favour of a way more top down approach. I think when you've chosen that person to be leader, let them just get on with it. Well. I think, listen, no system's going to be perfect, right? Um, And I think it's right that we do have a system that recognises the different constituent parts of the party um, because there's a reason why we have them, you know. um, The Labour Party is the political arm of the trade union movement. It's absolutely right that that we listen to our trade union affiliates, um, for example. But all our socialist societies and CLPs also have just such a wealth of information and talent in them that it would be it would be wrong to ignore them too. So listen, it's not a perfect system and I think it can be a bit convoluted to follow sometimes. So I do think we need to streamline it a bit. Um, But I think conference, you have to get a balance between those really important policy debates and, and speaking to the country. Because if we want to be... Um, in government, delivering for the most vulnerable people in our communities, we actually have to speak to the country and show them what we're going to do if we were elected. So it's a it's a fantastic opportunity to do that. So there has to be a balance. Um, and con- conference, I, I, I mean, I've always loved conference, um, apart from the late nights, which is another reason I like the coffee. <laughs> backstage yeah well the late nights is the good Um, bit it's the early mornings that are the problem yes well and and there um is where the 7 30 a.m nec meetings were always (laughs) challenging that's daft isn't it those days have gone thankfully um they're they're a bit later now but um and most and most during conference are are only dealing with conference business so not hefty but um but yeah there was a time you you would have to wait um to be notified whether the meeting was going ahead or not in the morning so you would be constantly checking your phone about 11 o'clock at night thinking can I stay up another hour and (laughs) chat to people or do I need to head to my bed um so yeah um at the end of the day, the NEC's, you know, it's got to deal with stuff that comes up, right? Um, but yeah, I love conference. I, I think I've been to every single party conference, apart from one, since I was 17. Okay, so... Uh, um, w- and that's making me feel quite old now. <laughs> well, that's fine. So what was your first one? What year was your first? 97. Oh, wow. Um, God, what an I opener. Know. I know. Well, actually, my very first conference was Scottish Labour Party conference in 97, and I introduced Tony Blair to conference. Um, and uh, and I had a, a phrase that made it into the daily record. I was, what was that? <laughs> and I, 
and I had uh, the staff all double checking it to make sure it was true, <laughs> which it was. Um, in 18 days' time, I will be able to vote against 18 years of Tory. Sorry, in 18 days' time, I'll turn 18 years of age and be able to vote against 18 years of Tory rule. What a, what a, firstly, what a great line, but what a lovely, you know, moment of fate. It, it was, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I introduced Tony Blair at my first conference and then the annual conference of that year, I moved the motion against tuition fees. Rebel. An early... I know, I know, a rebel. But to be fair, um, you know, my constituency in Scotland at that time had 10 delegates to conference um, and uh, we, we were all uh, invited in for a discussion with the leader. And how did that go? Well, I mean, it, it 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 actually went very well. And I think there was an understanding about why the motion had been tabled. Um, and, you know, we didn't withdraw it. <laughs> no, but you promised not to do it again. <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not so sure we ever did, but... Um, but I tell you what, he's always remembered me, to be fair. <laughs> and good for your credibility on the left, because you can say, I, I was against tuition fees. Well, I was. The thing yeah. is, that actually, this whole thing about the left and the right, my politics haven't ever changed. <laughs> so how um, do you end up, though, at 17, introducing the Prime Minister? Well, um, I was active in the party uh, before then. Um, I, rem- I remember the time very well. Um, Jack McConnell was the Scottish General Secretary of the Labour Party. And um, I was active in the youth cabinet. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so I was chosen. So did you... I, I still remember... Okay. Sorry, I still remember trying to uh, to write that speech, and uh, one of the party staff who who didn't retire until uh, recently um, helped me write it because I was very I was you know a school kid and very nervous, um, and we've been friends ever since as well. Um, but yeah, I mean it was a massive honour. Um, so yeah. So did you join at fifteen? Sixteen. And so in just one year, you, you you join and then you get... I mean, it must have felt like a whirlwind, really. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be in... You know, we're not... The Prime Minister, I mean, arguably Labour's greatest leader of all time, and, and you join and then within a year, you, you're not just meeting the guy, you're introducing him on stage. I mean, it must have felt yeah. like you were part of a band or something. It was, it was, yeah, incredible. So then uh, you've, you've had a few years on the NEC, sort of on and off. When were you first elected onto it? Um, 2010. Okay, so, oh my word. So your first conference is 97, and then your first year, on the, you know, when Labour first come in, and then you first get on the NEC the year that Labour lose and not been back in power since. So at that point, what was the complexion and the mood of the NEC? Well, um, I think that I, I think the NEC had felt quite remote um, for a while. Um, so I spent 13 years as a CLP secretary um, in Harriet Harman's constituency. Um, and it kind of felt like nobody listened to 
those of us who are paying down the streets every day. Um, and I do think the party do need to always remember that, you know, it, the volunteers are the backbone, you know, um, and are not there just to deliver leaflets and, you know, knock on doors, although very crucial tasks they are, I would say, some to add. Um, but they do, you know, have views and a voice and it's their party, it's our party, we're all members um, and they have a right to express those voices. So um, it, it, it always felt like the NEC was this remote body that wasn't in touch. Um, I, I couldn't have named an NEC rep at that time. And given I'd been a CLP secretary for 13 years and very active, um, like I was doing, uh, running selection panels for our local campaigns forum in Southwark, um, out almost every week on the doors. It kind of felt like somebody, something had to change about that relationship. And so I put myself forward for the NEC and, and was immediately told, you'll never get on, you're not on a slate. Um, and I said, well, you know, well, we'll just see about that. And um, I campaigned really hard. Um, and uh, Una King actually got on uh, and I came just after Una. But before the first NEC meeting of that newly elected NEC, obviously uh, she was elevated to the House of Lords. So uh, fastest loser gets in and I was there and um, I think there was a lot of people around the table who were a bit suspicious because you know people who weren't on slates of one form or another didn't get onto the NEC so I think everybody was waiting with bated breath to see if I was deranged <laughs> and how did so how did you I mean, and I wasn't <laughs> You finished second, but still, that's a great result. So, and if people aren't aware, a slate is effectively when one faction of the Labour Party um, legitimately, effectively says, look, these are the left-wing candidates, vote for these. These are the Blairite candidates, vote for these, or whatever. And in my view, the right of the party's never been as well organised. You know, it's just, the left have always been better at this stuff. Um, so to get elected not being part of, effectively, one of those organised cliques, however unorganised the organiser might be, how did you do it? I worked really hard, really hard, um, because I I kind of well because I knew the party inside out. I you know um, had been a branch secretary, I was a CLP secretary, I was active on my LCF, and you know so I I, I knew the party really well, and I just went out and spoke to people um, and and worked really hard, I, and I kind of knew that the. The, the different factions um, were just playing this game of, you know, whose turn is it to dominate next? And we only need to speak to certain people because we know that they'll turn out the votes we need. I, and there wasn't engagement beyond that. And it was the people beyond that that I spoke to. And I think um, after I'd served that first term, when the next elections came up, um, I, I stood again, and uh, again, everybody says, oh, we're definitely beating her this time. Um, and, and again, they didn't. Um, and this time I, I was elected in my own right. Um, and, uh, and then they all went, hmm, <laughs> what are we going to do to solve a problem like Joanna? <laughs> 
And then I think um, it was the old adage, you know, you can't beat them, join them. So. But then, I mean, am I right that the right of the party's never had a, a sort of good grassroots? Why has there never been? I mean, I know there's a sort of progress thing and, and whatever else, but it never had the the, the grassroots organisation in the same way. Maybe I'm wrong, but that was always my view of it. So um, I, I, I felt, um, you know, at that time, that it was kind of quite removed. I think there's proper grassroots organisation across both um, sides of the party now. Um, and I, I, because I think things have become very... Um, competitive shall we say uh, which always makes people work harder doesn't it um so uh so yeah i mean you know i, I i'm somebody that um when when uh, in some years, I was I was too left wing because uh, i i moved emotion against tuition phase um and and um i uh didn't vote for three pounds um register supporters so my goodness i must have been a very bad one um i think you got I that call right yeah I I history think is so proving you right there mm, yes i and sometimes actually you do need to stand up on on things like that and you know um for me that wasn't that was not a left right issue that was about should people literally just be able to pay three quid and vote for our leader when when people like me had invested our entire lives in a party for the right to vote for our leader, amongst other things. Um, and, and I just thought that devalued the membership. But also for a party that had a history of entryism, where the yeah. whole rule book was basically Absolutely. like a vault to you yeah. know freeze dates and all that sort of thing, so Absolutely. that affiliates can't just buy branches and they're up to a parliamentary selection, to allow the leadership of the party to be chosen in an easier way than a local candidate, I, I couldn't so, believe. I mean, it. no, neither can I, and I made exactly those arguments at the time at that NEC meeting. I remember it so clearly. It was on the Saturday morning of conference. Um, and of course, you know, it, it was one of those uh, real amendments that had never been discussed before, although it clearly been discussed with some people before. Um, but at that time, I wasn't one of those people. Um, and, uh, and I just thought it was just absolutely wrong. And there was no way that I could vote for it. Um, and I didn't. And um, I, I know that the messaging that went round afterwards, there was that I must be, you know, I'm not progressive enough um, because I didn't vote for that. And I just thought, that's not true. I know that's not true. You can say what you like, um, but I'll defend that decision in the same way that, you know, I mean, um, in the run up to the 2015 um, general election, I uh, put forward a motion to the National Policy Forum that was considering the manifesto about um, um, uh, abolishing tuition fee, uh, sorry, uh, employment tribunal fees if we got into government. Um, and people kept saying to me, um, that's unaffordable, we can't go that far, we'll have a review, all this way. I, I just wasn't going to let that go because it, for me, just felt like uh, you can't have employment rights 
if you can't enforce those rights. And it was literally taxing people out of their rights. Um, so for me, uh, I, you know, lots of people were trying to convince me that we just softened the wording um, and, I, and, I, and I wouldn't agree to that. So I ended up being quite a nuisance to Ed Miliband at that time. And yet, again, I'm glad that I did uh, because I got, I personally negotiated that wording um, that went into the manifesto um, with him. And later, employment tribunal fees were found to be unlawful. You were you were you were ahead of the curve. Um, you joined the Labour Party in its first year in government. You joined the NEC in its first year in opposition, and now you're chairing the NEC on the precipice of the next general election. You've got a unique perspective from you know internal and external on the party. How do you feel about Labour's prospects of the next general election and in Scotland? I'm really excited um about those prospects but I tell you what um I I would never ever take that for granted because I think what we've seen over recent years is that things can happen very quickly <laughs> in in UK politics but I tell you what you know the Scottish Labour Party has been crying out um for a Labour government um for so long and hope has returned um and it, it that feels good and um you can you can just see it in people's eyes at Scottish Labour Party conference the mood around conference was fantastic and I tell you what um one of the things that I'm really impressed with Keir Starmer about is actually how he has approached Scotland because I remember in the run-up to the independence referendum um in 2014 banging the drum at the NEC table about the need to take this seriously, the threat of nationalism, what it could do to our country, what it could do to our party. And it just felt like nobody was listening. Um, and you know what? I, I didn't vote for Keir in the leadership. Um, I he was It was my second preference. Um, I voted uh, first preference for Lisa Nandy. Um, and, and, you know, I'll I always be pleased that I did. But I tell you what, um, I absolutely respect Keir because what he has done is changed the relationship between um, the, the um, well, he's changed the relationship between the different constituent parts of the party in respect of devolution. He might not be from Scotland. Uh, he might not be from Wales. But he understands devolution in a way that few other people have. Um, Gordon Brown definitely did, obviously. Um, and Tony Blair delivered devolution. Um, but others haven't got it um, and have come up to Scotland before and, um, and, and told us what we need. Um, and that's not really the spirit of devolution. And I, I'll defend devolution to my dying day. Uh, but I will never, ever agree with nationalism because it's fundamentally at odds with our values um, because we believe we achieve more than together than we do apart. That's always been part of my belief system, why I'm in the Labour Party. So, 
you know, nationalism is only about breaking us apart. And so there's all the economic arguments and all the other technical arguments. But for me, fundamentally, um, we suffer if we put up barriers rather than break them down. And Keir has worked so well with Anna and Jackie to, to be respectful of the Scottish Labour Party and also to work with them on developing policies that benefit all parts of the UK um, and reflect that devolved settlement rather than challenging it. Obviously, you voted for a, a, a woman to be leader of the Labour Party. It never happened yet. Why do you think when basically every other party has had a, a woman leader at some point, including the Tories in the 70s, why have Labour never managed it? Oh, I if I had the answer to that question, life would be much easier. It, I, it's really frustrating. Um, and I, I mean, we, we would be remiss, though, not to remember that both Margaret Beckett and Harriet Harman have very ably stepped into those shoes um, when when the time has um, has required it. But, you know, I have no idea why anyone would think that um, we don't have the talent to have a very, very capable female leader because the breadth of talent that we've now got in the PLP is immense. And I have to say, one of the things about cheering conference um, is that you do, because, because you're on the stage, you are actively listening to all the speeches, whereas when you're when you're sitting um, watching it uh, in the um, in the hall, you know there's loads of chatter going on, and people can interrupt you, and you don't you perhaps don't catch everything all at once. Um, but when you really focus on what those shadow cabinet ministers were presenting last year, I thought it was incredible. Um, you know, Rachel, Lisa. Um, there, there are so many talented women in our party who would make a fine leader, but obviously uh, there isn't a vacancy, and I know that they'll all be working hard to make sure that Keir is the next person in number ten. Um, but you know, when the time, when when the time comes, um, I, you know, I think we've got a huge breadth of talent there to choose from. But I would also say, do you know what? I think um, I'd like to see more women coming through at all levels of the party because one of the things that I did notice, I, I visited more than 184 CLPs across the country just reporting back on the NEC and listening to members' views. And, and one thing that I found from that is that invariably, um, nine times out of ten, I'd say, from my rough estimate, um, CLP chairs are men, CLP secretaries, i.e. the ones that are carrying the heaviest workload, are women. So I'd like to see more women in leadership positions throughout all levels of the party. I mean, it's, uh, it, it, I mean, you're absolutely right. CLP secretaries obviously have a, have a you know, the Stalin's uh, view that whoever controls the minutes controls history puts uh, obviously a lot of power into those hands. But <laughs> it, it, I mean, I, I you know, I it drove me mad when I worked for the Labour Party, uh, and and there's a reason why I think Labour had to use all women. My view was always that effectively it was the thing that Blair talked about in the early noughties was forces of conservatism on the left. That actually, there are 
a lot elements of the Labour Party are, are structurally conservative with a small seeds that basically I was here first and yep. it's my go next. And, you know, effectively, the sort of downside, I guess, of elements of trade union culture, which is, well, you know, I was here first. It's my go next. And the people that were there first were blokes. And you sort of the idea that everyone else has to wait 30 years to, to get the sniff of anything. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I hope um, I'm wrong and I hope that's changed. Well, I mean, you know, I think I I, I think some elements um have changed and but we still see far fewer women putting themselves forward for elected office than we do men, uh, even though the women are just as capable. Um so I'd like to see a reversal of that. And I have to say the Labour women's um movement um does an incredible job in terms of just boosting the morale of women and confidence because half the time it is just about the confidence and women are much more reluctant to put themselves through like a rigorous selection if basically people are going around saying it's Joe Bloggs's seat by the way so don't bother you know and we've got to get rid of that and you are you are living proof that you can stand against those, um, you know, the, the, those sorts of approaches and absolutely beat those people. Jana, there's so much more I could talk to you about, but it's getting late and I've kept you for longer than I promised I would. Thank you so okay. much for coming on. No bother. No bother. I thought it was lovely to speak to you. Thank you. And um, all the best for the future. Thank you so much. Take care. Cheers. Well, there you go. Johanna Baxter, just so optimistic. And I do think the, the thing I always say to people about, you know, people say, oh, why do you do a podcast where you interview politicians? I think what makes politicians special, and again, this isn't an ideological point. There are people in every party that share this attribute. The stammer that they need is one thing to be an activist and to give your free time, door knocking, and, and that's that's a lot. And, and those people are special. But to then want to, you know, go through so many years of hardship and have the determination. And every party goes through that period. Every party has wilderness years, low points where it feels like, why on earth am I giving so much of my time to something that feels like it's continually losing? Is That vocational element and the energy it gives to people is something that I think... People aren't outside of politics, maybe might not appreciate it or, or maybe they don't get it. So hopefully, if you've never joined a political party uh, after that interview with Johanna, you, you will understand it perhaps a bit. Maybe it has inspired you to join one. Uh, and of course, if you are a member of a political party, you will absolutely... I mean, even if you are, you know, to to do what Johanna's done and, and w- basically work in politics during the day as a trade union officer, negotiating pay for public sector staff, and then and, and in local government, and then in your spare time, volunteer for a role that requires, you know, the, the difficult navigation of internal party factionalism and the face-to-face meetings and the pressure on the outcomes. My God, I, I think a lot of people in politics are very special people, and that is why. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. I continue to do this podcast because I just find them fascinating, uh, inspirational people, um, regardless of what their politics is. So uh, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I will see you on the 20th, oh no, on the 3rd of April, uh, when my guest is Ruth Davidson uh, to discuss everything that's going on. Just what perfect timing to talk about Scotland getting a new First Minister. So um, share this far and wide. Please leave a five-star written review, and I'll see you next time. ta